Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of SAPE Speaks, a podcast brought to you by sexual assault peer educators. SAPE is a student group committed to educating the Georgetown community about interpersonal violence and supporting survivors of sexual assault. SAPE hopes that this collection of conversations will encourage, support, educate, and inspire necessary dialogue in the Georgetown community. We want to remind listeners that the views expressed in this podcast are a representation of the speakers themselves and not all reflect those of SAPE, Health Education Services, or Georgetown. With all of that, let's dive into today's episode where we hope to learn more about interpersonal violence in the transgender community. Hi everyone, I'm Esme Kalbag and I'm a sophomore in the SFS majoring in STEO with a concentration in global health and biotechnology. I've been a part of SAPE for the past two years and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I'm Sarah Watson. I am a sophomore in the SFS as well, majoring in regional and comparative studies with a concentration in Asia and the Middle East. This is my first year a part of SAPE and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Today, we are super excited to be joined by Adrian Lawyer from the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Adrian, welcome. We're very grateful to have you here and we're very excited to talk to you today. Um, how long have you been at the Transgender Resource Center and what brought you into this work? So I'm a founder, which is a really uh, distinct breed in the nonprofit sector. Some yeah. people call it the nonprofit industrial complex. I get why they would say that. <laughs> and it's a specific uh, type that's a founder usually, which is typically somebody from an affected population who is not getting their own needs met and realizes that that must be happening to other people and then has the thought of like, I should do something about it. So that was me. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of complexities to that, right? There's a lot of things that come into that kind of thing, including, um, you know, a lot of demographic characteristics, a lot of things about my upbringing, you know, being a white person, being pretty well educated. I have a, I have a bachelor's degree. Um, so, you know, I was able to graduate high school and go on to college education. Like there's a, there's, there's a little, there's some unhealthy impetus in there, right? About like someone needs to do something and I should be the one to do it, you know? Like there, there's some flawed thinking there probably, you know? And at the same time, that's usually the, the sort of um, cardinal energy that gets something like this going, right? So uh, I'm a founder, but I'm, I'm happy to say that I have been open to learning a lot about my own biases and places where I don't see things well and the places where I do things and unintentionally cause harm, you know, and need to need to examine myself and and uh, you know, for me, that's even led to a lot of thinking and discussion around um, you know eventual succession. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of founders stay in their organizations for a real, real long time. In fact, in the nonprofit world, they call it founder syndrome, that an organization can become kind of toxic and become sort of a a cult of personality around that person. And then that's mm -hmm. not really the mission. Like that's not why the thing came into being was to be the Adrian show, right? It's supposed to be this thing that helps trans people. And in order for it to continue to um, evolve, you have to get a founder out usually and bring in fresh new leadership. And in our organization, the other, the other really important thought process around that is that both of us who, who, who began the organization were both um, white and both male identified. So we were both trans people, right? We're a trans-led organization and we're mm -hmm. a trans organization that was created by trans people for trans people. And still within the trans population, we recognize that the two of us are not the people that are experiencing the worst of the discrimination and violence that gets pointed towards trans people. 
So ideally, as the two of us move out, my my part, my business partner, I hate saying business, it's not like a business. <laughs> he's not my romantic partner, he's my partner at the center. You know, we created the center together. He just did this. He just completed this phase of leaving and we hired on a person who is a black transgender man to take over his responsibilities and that's the first senior leadership position we've ever hired into in the in the organization. So it's really intentional that we're trying to um, you know, have our successors be trans folks of color. And ideally my successor would be a trans woman who is also a person of color, right? So we've just got to do the work to find that candidate and not just say, oh, they didn't apply or, oh, we couldn't find that. You know, it's like, we have to do the work because that's who really should probably run the organization, you know, in a few years when I can, when I can step down. Now we've had this big transition, so it's not my time quite yet. But I'm starting to think in two or three years, will it be time and could I cycle myself out of it, you know? And it's not that I don't have passion for it. I love what I do so much, but it's more about an intentional thinking about how we structure these organizations and whose voices are in charge. And also, how do we, how do we help folks cultivate their own leadership skills and professional skills if they're never given the chance or never trusted to do those things? And so much of the time I see that um, you know, black trans women, indigenous trans women are not put into those kinds of positions of like power and authority where they, you know, will make the mistakes. Like, I mean, I've made lots of mistakes, right? But I was given the leeway to do that by the people around me, I think because of my identity characteristics and the privilege that I carry. So we have to, we have to create that kind of same nurturing space for folks who often don't get the same benefit of the doubt or the same mentoring opportunities, the same capacity building opportunities, all of that stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, we'd, we'd also love to spend a, a bit of time exploring how the work that you're doing intersects with um, interpersonal violence. And given the work that you, you are doing and that your organization, your organization does, what have you noticed? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just, a, now we don't use words like epidemic. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> taking on a whole new meaning, I think, but this feels like an epidemic in the trans populations, like up and down the line, right? Like across all demographics, we see a lot of interpersonal violence. We see family abuse, even with little trans kids, we see, you know, sexual violence happen to people as teens. We, you know, the, the, we have data in New Mexico now about our high school students throughout the state. Every state in the country has a survey that they give usually to middle school and high school students all over their state. Not every single school, but enough of a sampling to get a really good kind of a data set from it, right? And in New Mexico, we finally got them to start asking the young people if they were trans in 2017. So we have oh, two wow. data cycles now that show us really real data on trans height. They didn't do it for the middle schoolers. This is the same thing, right? They thought that was like too controversial to ask the middle schoolers. We finally <laughs> got them to ask the high schoolers. And the numbers I think were surprising to people who weren't us, right? First of all, the prevalence data showed that this was around three to three and a half percent. Both years that we have data for the number was real close. It was 3.4 and 3.2%. So that starts to look like real. Like that's probably how many trans people there are, right? Like that's, that's holding steady with the question. But what it, what it showed us that was more important than that was just the incredible disparities that these young people were facing. So uh, sexual violence for these kids was like three times as high as their cisgender peers. 
and I can't even understand it, right? It's just like, I don't even know what's causing these kids to get victimized at that rate, but there's something mm -hmm. that is very specific to a trans or non-binary identity. We can see it from the numbers. You can see it, you know? So we see violence at that level. I see it with adults all the time, even people who are housed and employed still experience interpersonal violence sometimes, but the folks in our community who are unsheltered are, are I mean, I've never, I've never witnessed anything like it. I have to say that I, I mean, I was so naive, right? I'm so, I was so privileged and so buffered from so much of this stuff in my upbringing. I just did not understand the day-to-day -day realities of engaging in like the commercial sex trade at all. And many of our sisters who come to drop in for services, that's the only way that they have to make a little bit of money, maybe get a hotel room to get something to eat, whatever it is. And so that's the, the job that they do, but it is rife. I mean, it is a consistent experience that you are going to get physically assaulted when you do that kind of work. It's so incredibly dangerous. So between, you know, between that kind of work and sometimes, you know, toxic or um, violent par partners or boyfriends, um, just the, the threat of that kind of endless threat of violence out on the street just for being visibly trans, that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the, the disparities exist for everyone, but as always, they're the worst for this group. Right? This is our most vulnerable group. When we think about trans women of color who live out on the streets of Albuquerque, those are the trans people that we know are bearing the brunt of the discrimination and violence that's distributed towards trans people. Yeah, well, thank you so much for talking about that. I think, like you said, so many people are very unaware of what that is going on right now. And so do you think you could touch a little more on like the experience that trans women of color like on the streets, like looking at that violence, um, looking at their experiences. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I don't think I realized, so I imagine it's a misconception for others too, is like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I thought too much about the, the cause and effect of these things, but I, I noticed that a lot of folks who were unsheltered were also dealing with like pretty serious substance misuse issues. And I guess maybe in my mind, I thought, well, they have a substance use problem and then they end up out on the street. But what I learned is that actually a lot of times is that you end up out on the street and then you develop a substance use problem, right? Yeah. Because you're coping with having to do these things that are just very hard. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could get into a car mm -hmm. with a stranger and engage in a sexual behavior with them for money. I just don't think my, my, my brain would let me do it. I just don't think I could do it. And that's true for my sisters too. So they use to be able to do it, you know? And they use to deal with the tedium and the boredom of the endless hours out there, right? So it's really that the life on the street drives people into substance use issues more, I think, than substance use issues drive people onto the street, you know? And I just think yeah. that's how you cope when, when, when it's long, long stretches of tedium and boredom and then flashes of violence, you know? It's like, how would you not want to self-medicate? How would you not want to address your nervous system that way? You know, it's just really hard. I mean, the stories that we hear, and I don't want to be salacious at all, but like, you know, we've had folks come in and tell us about getting into a car to go do a date with a guy and realizing there's no handle on the inside of the passenger door. The guy has ripped the handle out of the door so that she can't just get back out of the car and then really, really, really hurting her. You know, so it's just like stuff like that. But honestly, just two weeks ago, we had one of our sisters in a, in a, like a rehab facility because of a, 
of a boyfriend, like the, the actual partner. It hurt her so badly she could not feel her legs. And I think that oh ties God. back into all this stuff about self-esteem and value and worth, right? As trans people, I mean, I think this is hard for anyone in our culture, honestly, right? And especially I would say female identified people in our culture struggle hardcore with value and worth and boundaries and how much do you have to do to please others and all that stuff, right? But imagine being a transgender woman. So even your womanhood is in question, you know, even that is not something that can be taken at face value about you, right? So then anyone who says that they care for you, and I see this with transgender men as well, anyone who says they love you or care for you, I think there's a, a sort of a nagging feeling in the back of the mind, like, will I ever find someone else to love me? And so this yeah. person, even though they're hurting me, they say they love me and I don't know if anyone else would ever love me. So I can't just leave them or will I ever have another chance at love? At, you know, love, this is not love if somebody beats you till mm -hmm. you can't feel your legs, right? But what do you do if that's what you know and you don't know to say I'm worth more than this? And I believe of course someone else will love me because I'm worthy of love, right? We don't feel that way in our communities and dating is like not doing dates for money but dating, interpersonal dating is a really like fraught thing for trans people, right? There's all these questions internally about, do I tell the person I'm trans? When do I tell the person I'm trans? Do I have to tell them that I'm trans? Is that my obligation? And many, many trans women I know, the minute they disclose, it's like the person's not interested anymore. So how do you have the faith that you actually are worthy of being loved by somebody who wouldn't hurt you? You know, I think that's, that's a big factor in a lot of the issues that we face in our communities is this sort of underlying sense that we're not worthy you know yeah. by the treatment of other people like, i don't think it's innate right it's not an innate thing mm -hmm. when you told that all your life it's hard not to take that in yeah yeah um and based on the experiences that you've observed observed what barriers do survivors of interpersonal violence and sexual assault face when reporting and maybe how do identify identities influence some of those barriers? Big time. I mean, for us, it has been, we've been here for 10 years now doing all kinds of trainings and, um, you know, working with all kinds of providers. And so we worked really hard with our um, SANE nurses here, which I don't I mean, could there be a, a worse name for a better thing, you know, but they're like, <laughs> they're called sexual assault nurse examiners is what is the deal, right? They're sexual assault nurses. Yeah. So that turns into sane, which is so weirdly able. I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know. That's terrible. Right. But these yeah. folks, like, these are really good nurses who really want to help people who've been assaulted. And when we came onto the scene, they didn't know anything about trans people. And I know that, that trans people just wouldn't even go there because they knew they wouldn't get treated right. And if they did go there, they probably got handled incorrect. There probably were big mistakes that got made. And it wasn't because anybody in the situation was even oppositional. It was just a complete lack of knowledge and exposure. So we do trainings, 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 right? We train and train and train and train. And now our folks are very comfortable going in for a SANE exam if they need one. But think about any place where there's not a transgender resource center, right? You have really well-meaning and well-intentioned and big-hearted providers who know nothing about this population. And so they, they cannot do anything but make a mistake. They will always make a mistake. People yeah. don't reflexively handle this, right? They have to be taught. That's why even a two-hour training with us, we find, goes a really long way because people are like, oh, is that all there is to it? Now, I got it. I can do it now, right? But before they're like, oh, ee, ooh, ooh, ee, ah. and then they'll be like, were you born a girl? You know, 
or what you know what was your real name you know and it's like what no they don't mean that right they don't even mean that they just it's the yeah. reflective curiosity and people don't know to stifle it they ask questions they shouldn't ask they don't ask the questions they should and then people mm -hmm. are driven away from care you know i mean can you think of a more traumatized situation than having been a sexual assault victim and then having to go to a nurse who's going to in inspect you examine those parts of your body like to have to be vulnerable yeah. after you've been so harmed and now think about if there's a cultural barrier, right? Like I think about folks in Albuquerque, we have a really large like a Vietnamese immigrant population here. And I think about them, I'm like, man, what would you do if there was a language barrier and you're a Vietnamese immigrant and something like this happens and you have to now go to the same nurse? Like, I don't know if I would do it. Like that's <laughs> when you end up turning to community solutions and grassroots stuff and you don't go in for services because you just are so positive that they couldn't possibly be fluent enough to take care of you the right way. So we've made a lot of strides here, but I think when, when we think about nationwide, it still is not that great, right? People still don't, that's in fact why we made a transgender resource center is that we knew that there are other like homelessness service providers around town, but we knew our folks probably weren't going there. And we knew if it didn't say the word transgender in the name that people wouldn't trust it people would think we would probably not know what we were doing. Yeah, I think just based off of what you've said about like the lack of access to care, um, especially given how people treat it, um, could you speak more to like what equity and access looks like within the trans community? And also if there's been kind of what you were saying about the need of like community-based support, if there's been a shift within like nationwide, if there's been a shift towards more equitable access for different communities of color and different communities within the trans community. I see it, you know, but I think these kinds of changes are just so slow. I just really, yeah. this stuff, I mean, it's hard too, because most of us who do activism are not incrementalists by nature. You know, we're not really cool with these little tiny gains and like, it's this is all we're gonna get for now, but someday it'll be better, you know? We don't love that. We like, let's fix it. Like, let's fix it yeah. now. This does not have to be this way, right? But over time, I do see it changing. And I see even in the trans community more of a centering of like uh, BIPOC voices, you know, and funds <laughs> that are cropping up just to fund Black trans organizations and things like that. There's actually a thing called the Black Trans Fund. And it's part of a bigger yeah. funder called Groundswell, right? So like this is starting to come in, like funders are notoriously kind of, conservative right no no shade any funders who are listening to this I'm just saying, they're a little risk averse right like this it's it philanthropy is an industry that was begun to be a tax shelter for really affluent people you know so there's yeah. a sense of like that we want to spend the least we can they had to actually make a law that foundations have to spend five percent of their endowment down every year because if you don't make a law, they won't spend any of it, you know, they just will keep yeah. it and they keep growing and not, you know, not spend it. So I think it's really interesting when we see funders starting to come towards not just trans issues, but BIPOC trans issues and starting to look for these leaders to give this money to, it's that trust I was talking about, right? It's like starting yeah. to trust folks with these lived experiences to be the experts on it and to be completely capable of learning even things that we think of as like really like professional skills like you know I was brought up that way I went to prep school I'm a white person I know how to read financials I knew how to write a grant without being taught because I knew how to write a paper and this yeah. was a paper about my beloved baby like the 
organization I founded. No one could write a better paper about the center than me. And I went into it like, oh, this is just a paper. I'm just going to write it. And then we got some money, right? So think about all the people who don't learn these sort of white supremacist like frameworks for the way we do things. Things we call professional are often really yeah. like supremacist, right? Like it's like everyone has to be on time. Everyone has to be quiet. You have to use a certain tone of voice or nobody will listen to you. You have to know how to spell, right? If you can't spell, people think you're dumb, but that's not dumb. Not being a good speller is not the same as not being intelligent, right? Yeah. Not ever having seen a financial report doesn't mean you can't learn how to read one, right? Like we can, teach, we can teach that stuff to folks. What we can't teach people is how to be a black transgender woman. So let's teach black transgender women how to read financials. Or whatever it is they need to get by in this in this world you know because the world still enforces those frameworks and beliefs so i don't think we can fully get rid of them at this point but we can certainly do a lot of skill building and stuff with people and that's the thing they can get why wouldn't we want to push funds towards people who really are part of the community and who know what's going on way better yeah. than people who don't you know i think it's happening i think it's happening but I think it's really slow. It's like the same awakening we're seeing across the country right now, you know, where people are just <laughs> starting to have these conversations using words like white supremacy. Like that was, I'm 50, right? In my childhood, you did not utter that phrase. That would have been so charged and almost incendiary to say. And now our president talks about white supremacy, like white supremacy. We're just talking about it now, you know, yeah. racism. We're just talking about it. Critical race theory, I think, has gotten embedded in, you know, all over the country into schools and things even like you just almost can't get away they tried to outlaw critical race theory and you couldn't do it you know like we already talk that way now we already think that way now so as we continue to evolve around all of this i think that it will get better i really do think that i hope i'm not being naive i hope you're not being naive either. I know, right? I know. yeah <laughs> in social change or i could never get up every day to do what i do you know i have to believe that it does change and that yeah, it really yeah. over the course of history it will continue to improve not just shift but get better you know yeah for sure yeah for sure no thank you um that was some very helpful context and I hadn't thought about some of those things uh, but yeah and also from your perspective this is slightly different than equity and access but what do you think that conversations about consent look like within the communities you work within Oh, that's interesting. What a good question. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I feel like it's really just, uh, you know, it just totally depends. Like we're doing stuff with our, with our youth group. We have a, a support group that's for like 14 to 22 ish. And we bring in Planned Parenthood educators to do um, like really good trans fluent sex ed and relationship ed and stuff. And so like when we talk about healthy relationships with our youth group, that's just a very explicit overt component of it, right? Like we're yeah. just talking, we're just like, this is what, let's define it. Let's talk about it. Let's do role plays and scenarios and things. And like, I, I think that's what we should be doing. Even that's too old, right? Like, I think we should be teaching this with little ones. You know, we could do, yeah. we could do more pleasure-based comprehensive sex ed, even in elementary school. Just talking about like, how do you like to be touched? Do you like it soft? Do you like it hard? Do you like to be scratched? Do you like to be rough? You know, just even stuff like that. Like no one ever asked me that. Like I'm 50 yeah. years old and I'm still trying to figure out what I like and don't like <laughs> people to do. You know, like I don't even mean sexually. I just mean like personally, you know? 
And I just asked my kiddo that the other day, like, do you like to be touched? How do you like to be touched? Do you want to hug? Do you like if I touch your shoulder? And he told me some things I was not, I wasn't, didn't expect. And it was like, oh, man, I'm so happy I asked you that because I did not know that about you. Yeah. Now I can do a better job, you know, not doing what I think I would like, but what you tell me you actually like, you know? And I think all of that boundary building, boundary skill building and communication stuff we could be doing from the, from kindergarten, really, truly. There's so much developmentally appropriate stuff we could do. So if we've started younger, we wouldn't even be talking about this, right? Because people would just have been building these skills from a very young age. So with adults, I think it's really just like, it's all sort of um, very personal and individualized based on where everybody is emotionally, you know, in terms of their capacity. You know, we have, we work with a lot of people who are, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what the, how, how they like to be talked about right now, but I want to say autism spectrum. I don't know if that spectrum is cool anymore, but we work with a lot of folks who are autistic to varying degrees. I, I, don't, mm -hmm. again, I don't know the right language. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm still learning about this but people who are autistic and that's a different conversation then, right? It's a little bit different around like what's cool and what's not cool, you know? Yeah. But even at the drop-in center, we've tried to create the culture there, you know, where we will say like, do you want a hug, right? Instead of just going in for one. Hey, do you want to hug mm -hmm. today? Cool, great, come on, I'll hug you, you know, instead of just hugging people. Um, and I'll tell you, it's our youth group that's taught it to me the, the best because that's a place where I think I had a big learning curve and I, I'm so much older than them. I, I feel sort of parental toward them and it makes me want to go and like touch their shoulders and things. And like a lot of those kids don't like to be touched. And so it was really like, it was about if I really want to respect them and love them and care for them, it can't be the way I would like to be shown it. It has to be the way they would like to be shown it. And that sometimes is hard because if we're used to touching people that way, it can feel almost like a sting or like it's personal, like you don't want me to touch you. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying they just don't yeah. like you know, and if I don't like it, then please don't do it. It's like saying, I don't like it if you come and scream in my ear and then you come scream in my ear once a day, every day, because you just love screaming in people's ear. You know, it's like, don't do that. I just said, it's going to like freak me out, like listen and, and hear me, you know? So at the drop-in center, we just try to create the culture where people are able to say their boundaries. And we ask permission before we touch people. We don't just touch people. And then we teach that to folks too, right? Like just, hey, oh, we always ask first. So that way, if somebody doesn't want to hug, they don't have to have one, you know, things like that even. But I think, yeah, this is much more of a societal thing to me than a trans thing. Like this yeah. is just like, this is lacking so badly and is such a crucial thing. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree that we need to be having those conversations earlier on. I think um, one of the places where this becomes more trans specific would be even just in terms of like conversation. I can't tell yeah. you how many. I have to teach people like don't ask somebody about their genitals and if they've had surgery on their genitals that is I think very non-consensual right like mm -hmm. you get to just ask me any question and then I have to tell you that's not appropriate instead of like just don't don't do that yeah what that's not that's not even sound thinking to think that that was okay to do right but people don't know it's the same thing that I didn't know not to just hug people until somebody taught me so we're teaching that, we're teaching sort of boundaries on trans folks in general through our education program. Because we always mm -hmm. talk at length about like, this is okay to say, this is not okay to say. So we're setting up some sort of generic boundaries almost um, for trans folks around being trans. 
their individual boundaries have to be their own. But the trans stuff, we're trying to just get that information out to more and more people so that those boundaries don't get violated all the time. And I think that comes from education. Yeah. I mean, just because you mentioned it, could you talk a little bit more about your education program, like what that looks like? Ooh, I, I'm, I know we don't have a lot of time. Don't get me started. Y'all are running <laughs> on something I like to talk about. <laughs> so yeah, since, since about 2009, we do trainings that we have called, in the past, we've always called it Transgender 101. That was a naming convention that was used all across the country by activists okay. who were using totally different slide decks and stuff, but we all called them Transgender 101 trainings, just to give the idea that we're not going to go over your head. We know you don't know the basics and we're going to teach them to you today, right? It was sort of meant to kind of give people reassurance, like this isn't going to be too advanced. You're going to, you're going to get yeah. it. It's going to help you, right? Now we've reached a historical moment where people don't like it being called Trans 101 because people <laughs> who need a Trans 101 think they don't, right? They're like, I know about that. I watch Pose. I want a 201. And we're like, mm, yeah, really, you could use the 101, right? So we've just started calling that same training transgender cultural fluency now because that's what it is, right? And it hits people a little bit better like, oh, I'm learning how to be fluent, culturally fluent instead of like it's rudimentary or it somehow is some kind of remedial thing. So if you have a trans friend, you still need a 101, but you don't think you do. So we don't call it that anymore. But what it basically is, is teaching the terminology around this separating out biological sex from gender, from gender expression, mm -hmm. and from orientation. So those four traits, the four things, are sort of the heart of the first part of the training, just getting those things defined and getting them pulled apart. We define trans and we define cisgender. And then we go into some myths and misconceptions about trans people. We go into some intersectionality stuff. And then we do some kind of tips, like how could you be a stronger advocate or ally? Because um, typically these days, people really want that. They don't want to be given a training where they're not given things that I can do. Yeah. Like, I hear all of this. I never thought of it that way. I didn't realize trans kids were in so much danger. Now what do I do? What can I do? So we wrap with that now. And we've done, you know, this, we've done these since about 09. Like I said, um, we've been tracking them in a database now since 2017, the beginning of 2017. So right around four solid years of data. And we've done 800 trainings in that time and trained about 22,000 people. So when I think about all the years before we started tracking it and start to think about how many that really is, like we think we're probably 2,000 trainings in, and probably about 50,000 individuals. So oh, wow. we're pretty proud of it. We've been doing it yeah. a long time, you know, and we just keep doing it and keep trying to get to more and more and more audiences. And the thing is, you know, sometimes folks will tell me like, oh, training, psh, you know, like people just go to a training and they just check that box and it doesn't ever change anything. And I'm like, well, maybe somebody else is training, but we get feedback all the time that policies change in the wake of our training, intake forms change in the wake of our training. People 100% report changed attitudes and changed behaviors interpersonally. So I know that trainings can sort of be this like diversity exercise where people are just sort of going through the motions, but I don't know how to explain it. Our training does seem to create some real substantive change um, when we when we do it. Not in every place. I'm not, you know, not saying that, but we know we're planting a <laughs> lot of seeds, a lot of seeds, you know, yeah. and I, I'm so lucky because we're, we're part of our state, you know, we're part of our community here. So I get to hear about it sometimes, you know, we trained at the Sandia National Labs 
And then a year or so later, somebody sent me a little newsletter from inside the labs. And the associate director of the labs, she had written this beautiful thing about how she'd come to our training and thought it was really great and really great for their employees and all this stuff. But really what happened was about eight months after I trained her, her grandchild came out as trans and she knew what to do and was an ally to that kid because of the training. She wrote that up for the internal newsletter of the national lab so they could all read it. And then they sent it to me and I got to read it. And I was like, man, that's why I do what I, I was like, that's it. What could be more gratifying than that? You know, that was it to me. And then look how it wasn't professional, right? This helped her in her personal life with a person that she loved probably more than anybody. And she didn't Mm -hmm. step in it with them or alienate them or unintentionally hurt them because she had enough information and had generated enough compassion in her to be prepared for that moment, you know, and to do the right thing. Yeah, thank you for sharing about the training. That's really encouraging to hear. Um, that, that's really awesome to hear about. You're clearly doing very important work. Um, so thank you for sharing. Um, I guess one final question that we have for you is what challenges do you personally face when it comes to being an ally and also advocating for and supporting survivors of sexual violence? Mm. Probably I would say my biggest barriers are the same that I face in any of these areas, which is just the conditioning I've been subjected to since I was born. Right. So I think, Like that's the thing that's causing the movement to be so much about like believing survivors is that our conditioning tells us not to, right? We've been from early childhood, all the messages we get around this are like, it's suspect, right? Is that really true? Is she really telling the Mm -hmm. truth? She, they, the person, right? So much of the time it's a woman, but you know, is that person telling the truth? So for me, it's sort of trying to break down that conditioning and I see this in my life in so many ways because it, I'm, I'm trans, you know, and I was a lesbian for 20 years before that. Like I'm LGBTQ, I live with disabilities. I have, I have some marginalized traits, but overwhelmingly I'm a very privileged person. Overwhelmingly my identity characteristics are dominant ones more than they are marginalized ones. So I think for me, what I have is a lot of conditioning around race that I'm trying to slowly unravel, you know, conditioning around gender and sexism We live in this sexist culture. There's no way to escape those messages. There's just no way. So for men and women alike, we take that stuff in and it affects the way we interact with this topic, you know? And I don't think that we always even know it. We just don't even know it. It's, it's, it's so hard, you know, it's such a hard thing. I was trying to talk to my partner. This is a, this is not sexual assault. It's much more around the racial stuff, but I was trying to talk to my partner and I'm, this is a little vulnerable to talk about and admit, but like, I was really struggling with the idea that someone who's a person of color might experience something as racist or say that something was racist, but could it be not? Could it be that they felt that way, but it actually wasn't racist, you know? And I was like wrestling with this in this very sort of conceptual way, right? And then my partner said, our culture is racist. So if someone feels that something was racist, it was, it just was. Like, it's not about what the person meant or even what, you know, like, it doesn't matter. It, the things we do are racist, right? So, and I wasn't even talking about if somebody told me that, I'm talking about in general, right? Because if somebody tells me what I did was racist, I hope I'm not defensive. I hope I would just say, thank you. I'm going to really look at that, right? But sometimes I've seen it in other scenarios or even seen it where somebody thought something was transphobic. That's an even better example because it's more personal to me, right? 
or I've seen folks in the community say something happened that was really transphobic and I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think that's what it was, right? Like I, I'm looking at the same facts that you are and I'm not reading them that way. But the truth is our society is transphobic, you know? Yeah. People are traumatized and have heightened responses to these things, it's no wonder. But to then say it isn't that is, is, is violent in and of itself. You know, you can't tell somebody that they experienced something as racist and you're saying, well, I didn't, or I didn't interpret it that way. Like that, nobody cares. Nobody asked me if I thought it was, they thought it was. And the truth is it was because there's no reality outside of this conditioning. We can't separate the conditioning and the societal conditions from that incident. They're all intertwined, right? So I think that's where I think about that a lot with all different kinds of groups like sexual assault victims, like just where do I not see the places that I resist are the places where I'm, I'm quicker to disbelieve than believe are the places where I'm like, oh, I'd like to hear more of the facts. You know, it's like, that's not my job. I'm not going to investigate it. I'm just need to support that person right now. Someone else will investigate the facts of it. That's not important, right? It's not important. So I think that's probably a big deal. And I think access for trans people just again revolves so much around education. I think that's where people don't get services all over the country is just because they don't trust. They don't trust the providers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much, Adrian, for coming to speak with us and for all the amazing work that you and your organization are doing. Uh, these topics don't get talked mm -hmm. enough about, so we hope that we can help start important conversations on our campus. And for all our listeners, if you want to learn more about the work that Adrian and his organization are doing, please make sure to check out the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. All of the links will be in the show notes. And there you can also link other resources if you are in need of support, as well as the transcript for the episode. Also, if you want to learn more about what SAFE is doing in our virtual environment, make sure to check us out on Instagram at GU underscore SAFE. And don't forget to listen to our next episode, which will be out in May. Once again, thank you, Adrian, so much for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Safe Speaks.